From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Perrin Ashmore is the new Acting Chief Information Officer and Acting Chief Data Officer at the Department of Health and Human Services. Ashmore takes over for Jose Arrieta. He left government Friday after 17 years. FedScoop reports Ashmore worked closely with Arietta as principal deputy CIO. Another ruling against Oracle in its ongoing protest of the Defense Department's Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure contract. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit agrees with a lower court ruling that even if the Pentagon awarded the contract improperly, Oracle couldn't have met the requirements anyway. NextGov reports Oracle's first appeal of the JEDI contract was two years ago last month. The Coast Guard's deployment of the military health system's Genesis electronic health record is underway. Four California posts will be the first for the Guard's deployment. NextGov reports the Guard says it chose bases in Petaluma, Alameda, Sacramento, and San Francisco because of the services they provide and proximity to DOD facilities that are using the system. The National Institute of Standards and Technology has a new zero-trust architecture to help agencies modernize IT securely. The guidelines come as agencies navigate extended telework and, in some cases, make it permanent. Scott Rose is a computer scientist at the National Institute of, Institute of Standards and Technology. He's one of the authors of the zero-trust architecture. Scott, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What is, uh, give me an overview of what this looks like and, and how it will work for agencies. Well, um, basically, zero trust is kind of a new way of thinking about your cybersecurity architecture. Um, in many ways, it's kind of a natural evolution about what's been going on over the last decade or so, uh, where you're, you're kind of moving away from, de depending on network perimeters and firewalls and network segments, to kind of a more uh, looking at uh, endpoint security, um, identifying and, and and evaluating trust in individual users and add all the way down to the individual access requests. Um, and so we're kind of looking at um, security as, you know, never trust, always verify before you start doing any kind of network transaction or actually any kind of transaction over um, in, in the enterprise. It's a report in FedScoop that says this finalized guidance further ties zero trust architecture in with other federal constructs like its cybersecurity framework and the continuous diagnostics and mitigation program. What's that intersection, Scott? Uh, well, it's kind of like I said, zero trust kind of builds upon what's been kind of uh, previous work that's been done in the past. Uh, we didn't want to totally uh, reinvent the wheel and tell agencies to scrap what they're doing and focus on you know, the bright new uh, technology out there um, because because what the foundational work of zero trust such as like learning the users on the network uh, having a uh, assets uh, all monitored uh, network protection all of those have been kind of been in the pipeline for years agencies have been told to do that and it's been shown to do that um, and so zero trust kind of builds upon that so you kind of need to have that kind of foundational work uh, and that's well, that's been kind of been uh, part of the CDM program at DHS, uh, and then there's also you know the cybersecurity framework and the risk management framework at NIST. Those kind of provide the tools to help move to the zero trust architecture. Like how do you describe it? How do you actually know you're improving? Uh, you know things like that that you actually uh, security architects want to know. Um, so all of this builds upon 
previous work. It doesn't, uh, this isn't a total reinvention. This is kind of more of an evolutionary work. So if this is the foundation, uh, if this is built on the foundation of that previous work, is it possible this becomes a part of that foundation for something to come in the future? Should we assume, I guess this is a more conceptual question than, than, uh, than logistical, but should we assume that this is something that will be constantly evolving rather than reach some end state at some point? Probably yes. Um, at least one point of zero trust kind of uh, creates the um, the option, or at least the the envisionment of a total security, uh, as as kind of a envisioned in the uh, zero trust principles. Um, so there's many definitions of zero trust. All of them have some sort of set of guiding principles, uh, and those could almost be viewed as kind of like the platonic form of cybersecurity, uh, knowing that any architecture that you actually implement and deploy will probably never reach and meet all of those principles, at least in the near future. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a guiding set of principles and a goal to work towards. Um, so will there ever be something beyond zero trust? Probably. Um, but I think a lot of the principles that are described as, as, as enveloping zero trust are actually kind of these core set of principles uh, that have been kind of uh, foundational work in cybersecurity uh, ever since its inception. What do you want to see agencies do to implement this to its fullest potential, Scott? Uh, well, I'd personally like them to, you know, I, my advice would be to see what you're already doing. Um, like I said, it's, it's, this is an evolutionary work. So there's chances are that you have either in the planning or actually in the deployment and operation, a lot of this foundational work. Uh, you don't want to scrap that uh, just to move to kind of the new buzzword of you know, zero trust because actually what you're doing is the foundation of zero trust. Um, and then look at how you're completing your missions or how you're, you're the workflows in the agency or in the organization uh, because that kind of dictates the security policy. Uh, we were trying to you know, move away, Zero Trust tries to move away from the idea of securing a, um, a system and kind of in a vacuum uh, say a database or a mail system, you just say these are these are good security practices. We must all do them for the system. But looking at the full uh, workflow that that system is part of, like for instance, who is using that system, how are they accessing that system, why and when are they doing that, and kind of uh, building your security policy around that. Scott, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you here. Great, thanks to be here. Up next, putting price where it belongs in acquisition. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the experimental contract that could be a landmark. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back to General Services Administration's taking comments on a new solicitation for drones and robotics called the Astro Master Contract. The approach of the contract fulfills a promise the commissioner of GSA, Emily Murphy, made at her confirmation hearing almost three years ago. Alan Thomas is chief operating officer at IntelliBridge. He's former commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service at the General Services Administration. Alan, welcome. It's good to see you again. Uh, Emily Murphy, according to Federal News Network, said this at that confirmation hearing. We're trying to make sure GSA's contracting officers and our policies support really vigorous competition at the task order level because that's the amount we are actually going to spend. So we're gonna, we want to get the best deal there, the most competition we can there. 
What did she mean when she said that, Alan? So, Francis, she's really talking about the difference between a master contract. So if you think of the, uh, the GSA schedule, for example, right, it's a master contract, and there may be pricing established at the master contract level. And then under the master contract, there are actually orders, right? And that's where real competition happens. That's when customers come forward with specific requirements around what they want, what sort of outcomes they want to achieve. And when there's competition, right, that's where industry really comes and sharpens their pencil and, uh, and offer, offers actual, uh, actual prices, if you will, right? So the goal really is to get competition focused at the order level and perhaps not spend so much time and effort trying to determine pricing at the master contract level. What had to happen, and I imagine some of this happened under your jurisdiction at the Federal Acquisition Service, what had to happen to get from where we were, where we've been for a long time, to where we're headed now? So there was a, there was a provision in the NDAA, I think it was a 2019 NDAA. So GSA's had this, and the civilian side of the government's had this authority for about uh, two years. It was, I think, Section 876 in the NDAA, which um, which is called unpriced services, right? And it essentially allows uh, civilian agencies, and you see GSA with the, with the rulemaking and the comment that's come out actually starting to put this into practice. It allows them to potentially have unpriced master contracts and then allow the, the pricing to happen at the, uh, at the task order level. It's a big win, right? It's a pretty significant burden reduction from an industry standpoint. Um, and it also really makes sense from a, you know, from an agency standpoint as well, right? It's where a contracting officer should focus their time is when there's a real requirement or a real order, right? And not spend a lot of time trying to negotiate prices that uh, in some sense are a little bit fiction at the, at, at the master level. Do you think there's any significance to the type of contract that this is, that it's, or, you know, for what it's a contract for, for uh, robotics and drones, or did it just, do you think it was just the next one that was coming along? I think it was. I think it was the next one that was coming along. I think the team, the the FedSIN team that's putting out Astro, right, is pretty creative, right. There are a number of players there that were instrumental in putting uh, the Oasis contract in place. So they sort of broke new ground there in terms of that self-scoring uh, mechanism that's become pretty popular for you know for other types of, of government-wide contracts. So I think you know it it made sense to do it here because you've got a pretty good creative team in place. I also think, you know, it's been almost two years since this authority was granted in the NDAA, so it's time to really put it into place. For me, the big news is not so much what they're doing on Astro, I think that's important, but really um, the, the comment on rulemaking they put out where they're potentially gonna do this on the schedules program, right? That's a $31 billion a year program that just about every big industry player in, in this town holds. Um, it's a, that's potentially a very big change and, and, and uh, you know, could really be, really be a boon for, uh, for industry. Well, and that's where I wanted to go next is Emily tells uh, Jason Miller, Federal News Network, in this report, this is, we're, we're basically, I'm paraphrasing, but it, she's essentially saying we're going to try this on Astro and she anticipates seeing this in the future. This is not just a test. It sounds like this is the direction that she and I imagine you wanted to take the agency much more broadly. A absolutely right. So I, I would agree. It's sort of a crawl, walk, run, right? Where Astro might be the might be the crawl, but as I said, the big the big play is uh, is around schedules. Um, look, this has happened a little bit in DoD, right? So contracts like Seaport E or NetSense uh, have done this. They, they've had the authority over there uh, a little bit longer. But if you do it, you do it in the schedules program, it's a really big deal. And I think what will be important to see is in the uh, in the rulemaking and in how they implement it is, do they do it just for time and materials? 
and labor hour contracts or do the or orders or do they do it also for fixed price orders? So about two thirds of the orders, uh, services orders that go through schedule are fixed price, right? So that in my mind would be really the area um, that would be uh, in some sense a, a little bit of a revolution is if we did it for fixed price and it would allow, I think it would solve a, n a number of problems, right? So when you think about some sort of high end strategy firms that wanna come in and offer their services to top leaders in government you know, they price sometimes in a, in a fixed price way that's a little hard for government to get their arms around. The ability to sort of get them on schedule in an unpriced way and then have competition at the task order level might, might solve that problem and allow those firms to get, uh, to get access to government customers and allow government customers to get access to that expertise. About a minute left, Alan. What should we watch when it comes to the execution of this? The, either the comments on Astro, the way the contract's deployed, um, what, what should we watch, what comes next, any of that? So I, as I said, I think the big, in my mind, the big question is, are, are they going to do it also for, uh, they can do it on schedule, which it looks like they are, and are they going to do it for, uh, for firm fixed price uh, orders? I think that's, uh, you know, I think that's really important. And does, does this spread, right? Does the fact that GSA on the civilian side is sort of stepping out and, and taking advantage of this authority, does it spread? So when you have agency level IDIQs, do, do other civilian agencies who are putting um, IDIQs in place, do they, uh, do they also do it in an unpriced way? It's, it, you know, it really is from, from a contracting officer's standpoint, it doesn't make sense to spend a lot of time negotiating price at that master contract level. And, and you know, many in the industry who've been around for a while know, right, that you build a rate card and there are a number of throwaway rates uh, in there. It's a, it's, a, it's a little bit of a game that frankly is a time waster for both industry and for government. Everybody gets down to brass tacks when it uh, when you get to the order level when the requirements specified and that's really where it makes sense for everyone to focus their effort on making sure the government gets the best price to meet their requirement. Alan Thomas, thanks as always. Great to see you. Great to see you too, Francis. Take care. Up next, transitioning to telework at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the agency's digital transformation strategy helped the agency prepare before it needed to. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. This month's Digital VA is brought to you by Pure Storage. Department of Veterans Affairs has around 140,000 employees working from home. Their IT office's digital transformation strategy has helped the agency respond to the pandemic and keep its employees online. Susan Perez is Chief of Staff for the Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Information Technology. Susan, welcome back. What lessons have you learned over the six months or so that uh, the VA and everyone has been responding to the coronavirus? You know, we had an amazing amount, and, and thank you, Francis, for having me uh, on today. We learned a, an amazing amount, and the digital transformation strategy that we had in place really helped us propel ourselves in responding to this pandemic. We had several things in motion, including migration of our, uh, our uh, uh, computing into the cloud, um, migrating applications into the cloud. These things all played a big key role while we got ourselves uh, structured and postured, really, to respond to this pandemic. It was just one of the, the lessons. I mean, there are several others that I could get into. 
Um, and, and, and I'm happy to do that if you'd like me to continue. Yeah, yeah, I mean, every agency across government is dealing with the same issues, and yet the people that I talk to on an ongoing basis are hungering to know what their colleagues across government are doing in order to think about not just what you're up against today, but how you're planning for the next six months or the next year or the next two years, Susan. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, our digital strategy, I think, helped posture ourselves um, into responding. But really, the key is doing some of the basic things that you do as a leader. We were in communication not only with our customer, uh, but communication with our staff. For the customer base, being at their hip, knowing exactly where their pain points were, um, where we needed to be at, at a point in time to give the right infrastructure, to give the right equipment, um, where they needed to have activations done, just being shoulder to shoulder with them as they were planning that out, responding to their ever-changing plans. We literally came in on a Friday, came in on the Monday, and the investment strategy from VHA at that point went from over $2 billion into $16 billion in requirements. We had 24 hours to assess that. That's rapid. Um, and we, we had to look internally, what did we have, what did we need? Um, test the infrastructure. That's one of the biggest pieces of advice I give to other agencies who wanna know how to get ahead of it. That's how we uh, were able, again, to make sure we were postured to be very, very responsive. We tested ourselves um, at an agency level to make sure that we could support all of our uh, employees, both government and contractor-wise, to be in a remote posture that if they needed to telework that we absolutely had the bandwidth to support them we also had to make sure that we could support the uh the additional telehealth engagements you know and i'm very very proud of this agency we have we have done over three million telehealth visits um, from january to the end of august that is unheard of we had a record all-time high of over 35,000 telehealth visits. Uh, I think it was August 25th um, was the actual date. This is an, a, an extreme amount of that kind of engagement with our customer base, with our veteran base to do in this telehealth way. I hope that this will help the medical community to continue on with this path. Uh, and, and think of alternate ways that we can continue to heal this country, right? And heal them at a, at a massive amount. Susan, do you have a sense yet whether the virus and the virus response has changed or will change your digital transformation strategy, or is it just accelerating some of the things that you've described there, causing you to go faster on some things that you already intended to do? For VA, I would say it's definitely influenced us in going faster. Um, we did have a lot of these things planned out, but you know you can plan it out from a three to five year cycle, and then all of a sudden you have the moment, uh, I can't wait, three to five years, right? I gotta have it now in three to five days, three to five weeks. Um, and when you're looking at responding in that kind of a manner, you need to keep in mind having good relationships uh, with your vendor community. Right, we were also challenged as a nation with all kinds of issues of whether we could get the equipment, um, where, where were these allocations uh, going? So having good relationships is really a key. Um, those should be worked continuously. 
Um, having talented leaders all around us, I, I can't say enough kind words about our CIO, our uh, principal deputy, um, two of our leaders inside IT and this pandemic hit and we knew exactly how leadership was kind of falling into place. CIO went and he uh, pulled together a COVID response team and our PDAS, he knew his head had to be looking at everything else we had to do operationally, right? Work doesn't stop. So um, so having, having that kind of leadership around you and knowing that you can count on that team uh, is really key. I think a couple of other items that I don't wanna forget to say, communicating with the staff was a big key, um, making sure that they weren't uh, sitting there and kind of agonizing of what happens next and where's my job and do I go into the office and do you care about me? Saying those things, I know it sounds you know, sort of easy, but it's not, you have, to, you have to make the effort, you have to communicate with them. And, uh, and the value of governance. We had a very strong governance model already inside IT, and this really accelerated uh, another level of governance because we were uh, blessed with getting some COVID supplemental dollars, which we needed and we applied, and then we have to be very diligent on how that funding is getting spent. And so having the right governance structure, the right oversight that we're applying funds in the manner in which they were issued to us, uh, it means we're putting the right uh, resources on the right things. Susan, thanks very much for joining me. Congratulations on the progress you're making. Thank you, thank you for having me today. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.